Hi, this is Mish Hancock. You are listening to Mishmash, a place where I get to talk to the weird, wacky, and wonderful people of this world, people I adore and want to know more about. Today, my guest is Jim Carrington. He is the president of the Donald Danforth Plant Science Center, a St. Louis nonprofit organization whose mission is to improve human condition through plant science. Thank you so much for being here, Jim. Well, thank you for having me. I am so excited. You know, I so I, I shared with you that uh, I I was looking at the various things that the Plant Science Center is doing and what have you. And before we started, you were sharing with me what you all have, what plans do you have to help feed all of the people on this planet, but at the same time, not hurt our planet? Yeah, that's really, in my opinion, one of the great challenges of the 21st century. Right now, we have over 7 billion people and close to a billion, maybe 800,000 who are food insecure around the planet. But if you look just a few decades ahead toward the middle of the century, we're going to have, we're going to be pushing close to 10 billion people. Oh, gosh. And the challenge of providing affordable, nutritious food for a growing population and one that's going to demand a different type of diet as Living standards rise around the world. We've seen this in China, for example. The demand for meat really skyrockets. Really? And if you consider it takes 10 pounds of grain to make one pound of chicken, more for pork and more still for beef, you can see that the demand for food that we grow in our fields and on our farms is going to be... Um, growing dramatically through the 21st century. But really, the the challenge is, because I think with our current technology, we could do it. The problem is we overconsume our water. We would uh, uh, put too much greenhouse gas into the atmosphere. We would be eroding too much soil using current technology. So at the Danforth Center, our job, our challenge is to make sure that that technology and farming now and in the future not only keeps pace with the demand, but improves in a big way the sustainability of farming so that there's enough water for everything right. that everyone needs and there's clean water and there's enough land to grow our cities and enough land to have recreation with in addition to growing our food. Wow, so this is a huge focus. I mean, I can't even imagine. I feel like you are looking at all of the various entities that are going to come into play with this, which is awesome. That's right. It's a big, big scenario that we consider when we think about executing and delivering on our mission, which is to improve the human condition through plant science, feeding the world and... uh, For example, ensuring that food is affordable here in the U.S., Mm -hmm. but overseas, and in particular in developed regions of the world, making sure that they simply have the basics to grow their own food. And in many parts of the world, they don't even have the basics. Oh, gosh. I'll give you an example. Uh, If you look at our ability to produce corn here in the U.S., everyone understands we're really good at doing that. Right. It's a big, big deal here. Uh, but if you go to parts of sub-Saharan Africa, there, p- parts of Kenya, for example, corn is produced at only 20% the yield that we can achieve in the U.S. 
Do you know how long you have to go back in our history to get to 20% of the yield that we have today when our technology was much more primitive? You have to go all the way back to about 1945. Oh, I'll be darned. That's really illustrative of the challenge that we have that uh, delivering on our mission in the developed world means figuring out ways to work with partners and work with organizations and work with people, scientists, government officials in the underdeveloped or developing world to make sure that they have the tools in their hands to provide the basics. If they can provide the basics, uh, life is more secure They have a base on which to elevate their economic status, uh, and the tide rises for everyone if a region or a country is food secure. Right. And and as part of the mission, I mean, I, I would imagine that you are also looking critically at the soil, because I've heard so much about how our soil is not producing food that's as nutritious as it used to be. Is that a part of what you are looking at? Yeah, I'm not sure that the soil generally is producing food that's less nutritious. However, preserving and enhancing our soil is a big, big deal that is underappreciated, uh, even in scientific circles. Uh, you know, soil, it's dirt. Right. Right? Right. Um, and soil science kind of went through a little dip over the past few decades. Uh, But it's coming back in a very strong way because of the realization that it, for all practical purposes, is a finite resource. Mm -hmm. Soil does renew, but it takes a thousand years to regenerate an inch of topsoil. Really? So it's it's a finite resource. It is one that in too many parts of the world, it erodes. It's unstable. Too much of our soil has been lost because of um, suboptimal management. And so preserving soil on the farm and building it is, is extremely important for feeding the world. Uh, in addition, uh, and there's a lot of work that's going into this these days, it turns out that our agricultural soils and our soils in forests and in our wetlands, the, the, the ground and, the, and the, um, the, the base of the wetlands, is an incredible sink for carbon. Really? And so when we talk about what are we going to do to to mitigate and deal with the excess carbon dioxide that we're pumping up into the atmosphere by burning fossil fuels, for example, soil is a potential reservoir for that carbon. How do we build carbon in the soil? Uh, you manage your agricultural lands, for example, in ways that uh, reduce the volatility of the carbon. Uh, doing agriculture that rotates crops, okay. that has cover crops, that preserves moisture in the soil and therefore provides a rich environment for the microbes to do their job. Uh, but over time, there are things that we know can be done to increase the, the carbon level in the soil. And that will be an important part of, of the natural, you know, in the natural toolbox right. to help deal with, with carbon. So this makes me think, what does the modern day farmer look like? I, you know, because you, uh-huh. you, when you say the word farmer, you get, I get an image in my head, the straw hat, the bib overalls, the red tractor, the barn in the background. I'm sure 
that that does not at all paint the picture of a modern day farmer. What what does a modern day farmer look like? Uh, that's an interesting question because it was Halloween yesterday, <laughs> and yes. uh, exchanging messages with my daughter Audrey, who lives up in the Bellingham, Washington area, and she has a three year old son named Talon, and we asked, "What's Talon dressing up for Halloween?" He says he's a farmer. I and love so I, it. I, I wrote back and said, what kind of farmer? And she wrote back, said that she asked Talon, and he said, I'm a tractor farmer. <laughs> but I guess that's the point. The, the, the modern farmer today is a person running a high-tech business. Right. Uh, the machinery on the farm is nothing like it was when I was born. I was born in 1960, which was only 15 years after the number of tractors surpassed the number of working horses on the farm. Interesting. We have to remember that technology on the farm, even though technology has been introduced for almost 10,000 years, um, technology over the 20th century and the 21st century is really, really um, moving quickly. So you have better machinery, you have better ways to forecast. Just being able to forecast the weather gives the farmer an amazing advantage that they had in a much more primitive form uh, when I was born. You have dramatically improved seeds that are bred to yield highly in specific environments mm -hmm. that resist disease, that are robust to changes in the environment. Um, that's due to breeding. And then you've got these other tools that have come along relatively recently in the past 20 years, being able to move genes from one organism to the other. All things considered, that's a relatively minor part of the technology profile on the farm. Uh, but the, the modern farmer is driving GPS-controlled tractors, or not driving them. Right. They, they drive themselves. Oh, my gosh. They are... Um, uh, integrated in marketplaces that are just as high-tech as what's going on on their farm. Uh, and what this has enabled, again, over my lifetime, if you compare 1960 to today, uh, uh, in 1960, about 8% of the workforce was a farmer. That doesn't sound like very much no. until you compare it to today. And today, it's somewhere between 1% and 2% of really? the work workplace is a farmer. But that only tells part of the story. You can assume that we're more efficient, which we are. Um, but if you compare that 1960 farmer, that farmer on average fed 26 people. 25 other people could do things like build rockets that you know, went to the moon. Right, right. Uh, today, that farmer on average feeds 155 people. I'll be darned. And what happened between 1960 and today and what's been going on for hundreds of years, in fact is technology has converged on the farm to make it much more efficient. It makes it much more productive. And I'll give you one other um, set of facts on this. Again, comparing 1960, it's not just that we know how to produce more. We've learned how to produce more with less. So we produce a little over twice as much as what we produced in 1960. But we do it on the same amount of farm and pasture land, and we do it with about the same amount of water, just a little tick up 
in the amount of water usage. Again, that's due to technology. Wow. And another way of thinking about this, while I'm on the topic, is if you if we went back in time, let's say we could go back to 1960. Right. And use the technology on the farm as it existed then to serve our needs today, keeping in mind there's twice as many people today as there were, was in 1960, you would need twice as much land and you'd need twice as much water. In the United States today, about 60% of our water withdrawals from that, that human, that, that Americans use from rivers and groundwater sources and, and other surface water sources, we use about, in agriculture, about 60% of all the fresh water. So how do you double that? You can't. Yeah, right. If you tried to double the land used for farming and, and grazing, uh, you would have to use almost all of the land in the United States. And you, you, you just wouldn't be able to do no, it. No, you can't do Technology that. Technology has enabled us to do it much more efficiently. Um, but one of the issues that we deal with and that we think a lot about is it's come at a price. Right. Because through that efficiency, we have probably lowered a bit the diversity of crops on the farm. That causes problems. Right. Uh, we have the issue of runoff of fertilizer off the farm, nitrogen and phosphates. When that runs off the farm, that causes a problem. That's a, a form of pollution. Um, and we're using too much water. Look no further than what's happening out in the West. Exactly. In California, for example, where, you know, much of our fruits and nuts come and and our tomatoes and and uh, it's a huge problem not having water to use in agriculture for optimum agriculture. So technology is the way that we're going to be able to grow plants with less consumption of water. So fascinating, and thank you. That that thank you. That was so interesting. I'm glad I asked that question. You know, I want. I just. I was wondering. I thought everybody thinks farmer, but the farmer has changed. And, and obviously the technology. We are going to take a quick break and we will be right back with Dr. Jim Carrington. Hi, this is Mish Hancock and I'm the owner of 100th Monkey Media. 100th Monkey Media specializes in affordable and very effective social media solutions for the small to medium sized business. Our goal is to create a social media presence that shows off who you are, what you do, and delivers brand loyalty and raving fans. Contact us today to learn what 100th Monkey Media can do for you. 636-789-1776 or visit 100thmm.com. That's 636-789-1776 or 100thmm.com. And we are back with Dr. Jim Carrington, who is also going to be one of our speakers at our Bounce event on December 10th. Can you tell us a bit about your talk? Not revealing too much, but the topic and just kind of some things we can expect. I'm going to talk about... What forms some of our opinions and attitudes about food? And I'm going to talk about what technology has done on the farm. And in the end, I hope that I can uh, stimulate people to think just a little bit more about why we need technology on the farm. Right. I mentioned it a little bit already. If we didn't have technology on the farm 
better tractors, better seed, better technology to manage soil and water, uh, we're not going to be able to meet the demands without really suffocating the planet, over-consuming resources. And I'm going to give some examples of um, parts of the world that have been bypassed by technology and um, why, what we can do to elevate people, elevate farming, and elevate living standards with just a little bit of science and technology that we enjoy today here in the U.S., but not everyone has access to it. Right. Do you think, I, I had an experience um, a few months ago where my local grocery store, which I'm accustomed to going in and there's all the fruits and vegetables and everything I need. And the shipment for them was late by two days. And when I walked in the grocery store, there was, I mean, the produce department was practically bare after only two days. To me, that was such, it, I, I mean, I, it took my breath away. I thought, wow, that's how quickly my food can, yeah. I, cannot, I can be at a place where I don't have access to the food. I'm so accustomed to just getting in and going in and buying. I mean, you know, this is something I think about. Yeah, and you should think about it because it's an important set of issues you just raised, ranging from just how much food do we have? We like to think, and it's a very popular notion, and it's true in many ways, that we produce more than enough here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And in the, the developed world, we probably produce more than enough. Um, do we waste food? Absolutely. Yes. There's unacceptable amounts of waste. But is there disease and spoilage that's caused by things that we have less control over? It's a big, big part of the problem. Um, and w when you talk about disease, for example, uh, there are lots of examples of epidemics. You know, plants get sick right. just like people do. And lots of examples through history where the course of history has been changed because of plant disease. We don't think about it because... Most people didn't grow up on the farm and they didn't see the impact of, of obscure sounding pathogens like Phytophthora infestans. Oh yeah, no, I don't um, know that one. <laughs> well, that's, that one caused the uh, great potato famine in the mid 19th oh, century in okay. Ireland. It caused uh, the deaths and migration of millions of people. We have a large Irish population right. that came to the U.S., um, directly as a result of being unable to produce enough food because of this little microbe that attacked potatoes and destroyed the crop wow. over, over several years. Um, and millions can die because of spoilage and disease that we have only limited abilities to control. So yes, there is waste. And we need technology to help manage that. When we talk about why is food wasting, um, is, it, is it because we're too picky? And if there's a blemish on the apple, um, uh, maybe that's part of it. But right. we, also, we also buy perhaps more than we actually need. And um, there's tolerances that we need to rethink in supermarkets and in restaurants and we have the luxury in the U.S., uh, unfortunately, that we feel we can throw food out and there's no cost and no, no um, consequence to it. But that's we, we need to change. That's a big part of it. The 
You know, I'll tell you the story of where it became uh, very clear to me that uh, we're, we have this luxurious position in the United States. In 1990, when I was a professor at Texas A&M, uh, where lots of good things happened to me, I met my wife there, um, but I invited two Russian scientists over. It was right after uh, Gorbachev relaxed visa restrictions and scientists could now move uh, to the West and two Russian scientists came to the lab and they flew in on a stormy night. I picked them up at the little airport in College Station, Texas and took them to their apartment that we'd arranged for them and then I took them to the local supermarket. Mm-hmm. It's probably nine o'clock in the evening and uh, we got in there and the my, my two Russian colleagues were just wide-eyed looking around inside the supermarket and of course, I had I had heard I hadn't been to Russia at that time, but I'd heard that you know food was tight right. in Russia, and there were lines. And so I said, uh, "What do you think?" And they, and they said, uh, "They said this look on their face." I said, I've, "You know, are you surprised how much food there is here?" They said, "No, we're surprised because there's no people here." Oh gosh, that's. Uh- the other side of it yeah. is uh, if the if the if the produce truck doesn't show up at your supermarket for two days, you'll see the impact of too many people after too little food. Yes, it's it's tempting to think that we produce too much, but in reality, um, that it, we we may want to take a look at this and. Um, and do more here in the U.S. to manage our food in a way that doesn't treat it, you know, as so much of a luxury that we can afford to waste. Right, right. You know, and that, and that, I mean, I see where it happens with, you know, people get busy. Oh, we'll just go out to eat tonight. We don't have time to cook. You know, I see it, and and I'm totally guilty of it of myself. You know, I'm like I know, I know, we should probably cook tonight, but I'm just so tired. Let's just go get something or order a pizza or something like that. So there's a lot to be said for being much more conscious and aware mm-hmm. of our food and and to I mean I mean I think to to put a lot of value in it to put more value in it than we do. It's not something that oh, if I don't need it just throw away. To look at it as, you know, I don't have to I mean we do stand in lines at the grocery store but certainly it's it's doable. <laughs> you know, that's it's not right. some huge long line that's going to take forever and you may not get what you actually want that's at right. the end. We're all we're all guilty of this. Uh, when the strawberries sit in the refrigerator for three days because you didn't eat them in one day and there's mold on them, well, yep, they go and they go in the trash or they go in the compost pile. Um, we 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 have an attitude about food that um, that might need to change over time. It's it, very important to realize that there are other parts of the world that do not have that luxury, and it's not a matter simply of waste and and um, carelessness or or throwing food away. There are uh, a lot of places in the world that affect billions of people where it is a matter of food insecurity because the food either doesn't exist or it is inconsistently supplied or inconsistently produced. And uh, there are issues of nutrition and nutritional security. Yes. So... The Danforth Center, we look real carefully at that on the, on the international level. 
Um, and we look very carefully at ways that we can preserve yield on the farm and post-harvest to reduce the impact of diseases and spoilage. So interesting. So yeah, if, if, if anything, let's get everybody thinking a little bit more about the food they buy and if they're actually going to be able to eat it or not, right? <laughs> That's something we That's can right. all do. It's a doable That's thing. That's right. Everyone can do it. Yeah, it's a very doable something you can teach your right kids now. from a very early age. And in fact, I think... You know, people listening to this, they're going to think back and say, well, yeah, that's what my mom told me when I was growing up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, th- there are kids starving somewhere. Right. So eat your food. There's a certain sensibility to that. I think um, we can we can keep that in mind, but also revise and uh, think about the ecological consequences of wasting food. That took energy to produce. Right. It took land to produce. It took resources. It took water that um, in some cases uh, are, 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 are putting pressure on our ability to not only grow food, but function as a society. So if we're uh, taking advantage of that to the extent that we're wasting resources through wasting food, uh, that's another dimension that um, we should be telling our kids today. Yeah, I thank you for that. I am. I'm. I'm. I'm telling you now. I'm going to think differently about this. I want to. I think it's a. It's part of my duty here. <laughs> so thank you for that. We're going to take another quick break, and we will be right back. This is Mickey Hancock. Now's a good time to get a snack. My mom's going to do another commercial. If you're looking for an agency to help you with creating and publishing engaging content, launching campaigns, or reputation management, 100th Monkey Media is the social media agency for you. Make your business successful with its social media and get a real return from your investment. 100th Monkey Media is far more affordable than you may think, and we make it easy and impactful. Learn how 100th Monkey Media can help you on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Pinterest, and more. Contact us at 636-789-1776 or visit 100thmm.com. That's 636-789-1776 or visit 100thmm.com. And we are back with Dr. Jim Carrington. So I have some questions for you. And you know you have free license with these. Far away. Do understand you're a golfer. So my question is, what is the intersection of plant science and golf when you think oh, of wow. the sustainability of a golf course? And Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I could spend, you know, the whole 30 minutes talking about that um, or talking about golf. Um, <laughs> golf, just to put it into context, that's one of our main recreational activities that my wife Terry and I do. And so... Uh, when the weather's nice, we're out on the golf course on the weekends. Uh, golf and sustainability. Uh, the golf industry is at a bit of a crossroads for the reasons we've been talking about. Golf courses take a lot of water. They take right. a lot of fertilizer. They have taken in the past a lot of pesticides mm-hmm. um, and fungicides. A lot of things that... Um, that can create issues over time. Um, And so challenges that the industry has are developing turf grass that requires less water. Okay. Uh, Turf grass that requires less fertilizer. So how do you grow turf grass if you don't apply fertilizer? Well, one solution is to 
use nature's answers to solve these problems. Nature has solved all of the problems we have in agriculture or turf grass management in the case of golf courses. If you walk along, you know, go out to the beaches of South Carolina, for example, or Florida, you'll see dunes grasses growing uh, right next to the seashore. Right. They're growing on that, what couldn't possibly be high quality soil, it's sand, and there's seawater blowing on it all the time that has a lot of salt on it. So how does a grass like paspalum thrive in that environment? Nature has figured out how to grow plants in a high salt environment with relatively little water or salty water in relatively poor soil. So uh, can, so what are some of the answers that nature has come up with? Um, the roots are associated with all kinds of beneficial microbes, bacteria and fungi, and a lot of them provide nutrients to the plants. So if we can figure out how to make turf grass more um, in symbioses with the microbes living underground, uh, we can potentially use less fertilizer. If we can breed for more drought-resistant turf grass to mimic some of the grasses that grow in the desert, for example, mm -hmm. or again in a sandy dune, uh, that's something that will have benefit to all of society, not just uh, the crazy golfers who go out there and chase a little white ball around. <laughs> Um, so, and it's interesting that you asked that because the USGA, the U.S. Golf Association, just awarded a grant to a couple of our scientists, Toby Kellogg and Ivan Baxter, um, and their colleagues, to figure out some of these questions with Paspalum grass. Oh, great! Yeah, we didn't set that up ahead of time. That's, no, no, that was a good question. No, we didn't. We didn't. These are these are just questions that you know come to us that we feel the need to ask. But uh -huh. you know, some people helped us. So, <laughs> uh, let me. So, thinking of the 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 center, and if I am walking up to the center, is there something in particular you would hope I'd notice? If you walked up to if the I'm, Danforth as, Center, as I'm absolutely. Up, what 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 shall I notice? So. Today, what you would notice is that instead of having a large manicured lawn with shrubbery and ornamental trees on the um, six or eight acres that we just redesigned because we put a new wing up, mm -hmm. uh, we just, we're undergoing an expansion. Instead of seeing a manicured landscape, you're going to see the first year of a reconstructed Missouri tallgrass prairie. Really? The reason that we converted our landscape to what we hope will be a good representation of what was here 200 years ago is because prairies have so much to teach us about how nature solves the problems we have in agriculture. You, when, if there's a drought in a prairie landscape, the plants do just fine. Huh. Hardy. They're, they're, they're because they have... Over time, evolution has endowed them with survival mechanisms that we can learn from. And so part of this, of this prairie project is to show people that in the natural plant world, with all of the natural diversity and biodiversity, the hundreds of thousands of plant species that are out there, there is so much invention to solve problems that we care about we have to preserve those species, but we also have to study them. Right. We have to understand how ecosystems like a prairie is so robust and so productive 
Um, how prairies, for example, loaded so much carbon into the soil, the rich soils we have in the Midwest are because of those, those prairies that we've largely displaced. Yeah. And that, frankly, has contributed to carbon dioxide in the atmosphere as we have um, uh, turned the soil over and exposed all that carbon, that organic carbon, to the atmosphere, it volatilizes. Um, so how, how prairies pump carbon into the soil, that's a very important question. How, how, uh, how deep roots form a species like, like big blue stem, uh, the roots can go down 10 feet or so. Really? Um, maybe even more. How, how did they do that? And if we can learn how to make roots grow deeper, can we, can we breed those types of properties into our agricultural plants to draw water deeper in the soil profile. So that's the one thing that you would notice right off the bat. Second thing you would notice is uh, we have a little water feature out in front that we just redesigned and turned it into a water garden with lots of different plant species and, and a bridge that goes from our front door out to the prairie. And that bridge symbolizes the connection that we have between our native landscapes, our biodiversity, our, our wild plant species, and our agriculture that we're working on to improve and make more sustainable. That bridge between the two is vital. Um, as we do science to understand how plants work, and as we do science to uh, breed crops that are more sustainable uh, and highly productive, we have to remember where the germplasm, where the genetic source of all of our crop plants resides, and that's out in the wild. And those wild plant species have all kinds of resistance to diseases. They have all these environmental adaptation mechanisms that we may depend on. You know, survival of, of the human race over a long period of time may depend on us understanding our native plant species much, much better. So that's wow. what you would notice if you walked into the dance center. How thoughtful to put all that together, too. I mean, I, you know, it just says so much about what the what the plant science center is all about, right? To showcase that when you first walk up, I love it. We did very much want to showcase that, and um, it it says a lot about the people that we have at the Danforth Center. Sometimes plant scientists get a bad rap. They think that plant scientists are just people working in a lab trying to figure out what they can, you know, do to, to press the limits of genetic engineering, for example. Um, but that's not really the case. Everyone at the Danforth Center, and I am comfortable saying everyone, everyone, all of our scientists and all of our support staff, uh, they're there for a reason, and it's a big important reason that we have these big grand challenges that are going to depend on producing food, but also preserving the environment. Um, and it's what distinguishes the Danforth Center from a lot of other places that that do plant science research. It's a singular focus, um, and it's done by people who really care about these issues and how they affect people. That's awesome. And I, I mean, I love to know, you, you love hearing that, right? Because it's true. Some people have a certain view of what's going on there. And uh, they may not know that these well, this is pe these are people coming from heart. Yeah, we don't lock the doors. We encourage people to come and walk through and talk with our people and 
and see what we do and the impact that we're having and seeking to have. So my next question for you, and I'm sure you have a number of them, but you know, right now, um, right now at this time, is there a certain plant that you find especially intriguing or interesting? Oh, there's a lot of plants. I mentioned the prairie plants. Mm -hmm. Um, They're very interesting. There's when, when our prairie is finished, there's going to be 75 species or so that we've planted out there. Um, uh, uh, man, you're, you're stumping me here. I'll tell you one of the, one of the plants that we work on in several groups, and it has a large international component. Um, one of the plants that we work on is a staple food crop called cassava. And if anyone's been out to the Danforth Center and toured through our growth facilities, our greenhouses, uh, you'll see a lot of cassava. It is environmentally very sturdy. It's grown in sub-Saharan Africa, parts of Asia, South America. Um, but if you take cassava and, and you eat it kind of like sweet potato. Right. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a, a root. It's a, it's it's a, a root modified, it's an edible root. Okay. Um, and it provides literal food security because you can keep the plants in the ground for a couple of years. And if your corn and bean crop fails in Kenya, for example, or, or, uh, or Uganda, um, you can harvest the cassava because it's stable in the soil for several years. It is very rich in calorie, but relatively poor in vitamins and minerals that we need. Um, it's also susceptible to several important diseases. Incredibly drought resistant though. Okay. Um, and it can grow in a rocky field like nothing else. Uh, so cassava is what we're putting a lot of attention on to understand how to uh, take advantage of natural disease resistance mechanisms to um, uh, fight some particular viruses that are particularly devastating. There's virus diseases, bacterial diseases, and other diseases that are real limitations to food security in the developed world that we're paying a lot of attention to. We're also looking at cassava to understand something called epigenetics. Oh. Epigenetics is not what we were taught back in the old days in genetics courses, but it's taught today. It's how genetic information is controlled uh, through mechanisms that involve changes in DNA that right. happen that happen naturally. I'm fascinated with that, but I got to tell you, I'm fascinated. It's gene expression, correct? And it, it's that, that whole idea of you are not your DNA. You actually can change your DNA. Your DNA can change. You, you, your, your, your DNA chemically can change right. through little molecular decorations. And the sequence of A's, G's, C's, and T's is pretty stable, mm-hmm. but things that get hooked on to those A's, G's, C's, and T's or that interact with those those DNA strands, that can change. That can change in a day. It can change over a lifetime. And it affects what happens, how we behave, and, and, um, and what we look like. And it can even be transmitted from one generation to the next. Yeah, right. It's it's fa- it's one of the most fascinating subjects I've I've read, and I'm I'm sure I I would oh I would love to have a whole conversation yeah. to with you about well, this because I'm field, fascinated with it. It's a big field it. in people and animals, and it's also a big big field in the plant world. 
Well, thank you so much. I, I can't tell you, that was just fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing all this information with well, us. Thanks for asking great questions and thanks for having me. And we look very forward to your talk on December 10th. So everyone, be ready because we are, we, I, I can't wait to hear what you're going to talk about. This is um, what is happening now at the Plant Science Center is fascinating. It is world changing. Thank you for doing this for us. We appreciate your passion and drive to make this happen. And everyone out there, have a wonderful day. We'll see you next time. 